Welcome back to Pound on the Table. We are super excited today to introduce Mr. Jam Carson, aka Jam Croissant on Twitter, aka the Bread Man. So Jam is the founder of EGA Capital, which is going to be rebranding here as Kai Volatility Advisor, based out of Chicago. He's one of our favorite followers on Twitter. So super honored to have you on the show, Jam. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. We have a ton of great questions from our fellow pounders, but before we get into the nitty gritty, if you don't mind just quickly introducing yourself, you know, what's your background? How did you get into the financial world and start? Yeah, not your typical route. So I was born in London, lived in Turkey as a child, moved to Texas of all places as a, you know, as at the age of five and a half, six, went to Turkey every summer, kind of grew up across uh, different countries and different cultures. And it really kind of gave me, I think, a different kind of view than, than your average person you know, was really into macro policy and foreign policy. My parents were in Norway. I ended up going to prep school on the East Coast. So I was always kind of, uh, you know, into, into international relations and, and, and policy. And my father was a PhD structural engineer. My mother is an engineer. I grew up, you know, loving math, loving science. And so I didn't really know where, where this would all kind of, how this would come together. Applied to Georgetown, School of Foreign Service got in, you know, a couple of other kind of foreign policy schools. But then ended up at Rice University, which was this great engineering school that also had a great policy institute, you know, the James A. Baker Policy Institute. So it was like this perfect combination for me, allowed me to not commit to kind of being uh, in policy. And then uh, I really got into the engineering courses and into the math side of things, was always really into financial markets as well and, and, and had, you know, uh, you know a, a stock account that I would trade starting in, at Andover started learning about derivatives. And that seemed like a natural kind of thing for me, a way, particularly on a macro level, right? Yeah. And so I had this amazing, unique opportunity to go, you know, come to Chicago and trade in the pits of Chicago mm-hmm. in the S&P 500 uh, index complex. And it was, you know, Rice grad had come and interviewed at Rice. A, cu- a couple guys I knew had worked at that firm or were working at that firm. And, and it just was this amazing, unique opportunity to get kind of deep into the belly of the beast. Yeah. And, and learn firsthand. And I, I couldn't have you know, chosen a better opportunity. That was in 98, right uh, before the tech bubble burst. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, really gave me a, a unique you know, insight into kind of how the market works and not just how it works, but really gave me an opportunity too, to, to dive in and make a lot of money in a vol market that was really pretty intense during the, the tech bubble crash. I came in on the tail of long-term capital as well. So really got this uh, interesting picture of of how important supply and demand were, right? Most people come into capital markets thinking about fundamentals and price earnings ratios and, you know, <laughs> all kinds of other, you know, uh, what I think of as secondary factors that influence the supply and demand flows. Right. But I really came, you know, from, uh, you know, from a flows kind of background mm-hmm. and, and, and that really informed, you know, the way I look at the world. I'm sure we'll talk about later kind of Ivana and Charm and all these other directional indicators. But all of those indicators um, really came from necessity. You know, I, I managed a really big book. We were 13% of the S&P volume, you know, once I left my original firm and ended up becoming, you know, a bigger market making firm on my own down. And, you know, those positions would invariably, you'd sell what was high and buy what was low and structure these really big positions. But invariably, you'd have the same position as as most of the street, the dealers would, because you were taking on the flow from the customers. You know, invariably, those those positions would lose money or not make money. And and even though they were priced at an incredibly cheap or incredibly expensive level, the more you did attribution and tried to understand why that was, you began to realize that uh, it was really the reflexivity that I talk so much about, about dealer Mm -hmm. positioning. Right. And, you know, in order to capture those, those edges, I knew I had to go buy stock or sell ball as that decayed. And those effects, I was not the only one. It really becomes this chase to do that. And those things ultimately affect the distributions of underlying as well as, as the ball dynamics as well. So right. again, we'll dive into that more down the road, but, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, you know, that, that really is kind of how I got started in the business, how uh, kind of my view of, of markets kind of started mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and that's kind of, uh, what informed my, I think what, what's a pretty unique kind of angle at looking at the markets. Yeah. And for those who are like unfamiliar, right? So folks like myself and maybe many of our listeners, you kept mentioning being a market maker, right? I, I come from the, the sports betting background, you know, is, <laughs> it, were you essentially the bookie or kind of like acting as the casino? Is that what that means? Market maker? Kind of. I mean, essentially a bookie or an insurance company or all these things do a same, the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their business is to manage risk and to take edge out of the marketplace. You know, in that sense, it's the same, right? You know, you price insurance, you price a bet, and 
you price it, how do you price it? You price it based on the information that's available to you. And the information that's available is generally based on other theories of bets or other probabilities that are out there in the world. And you hedge yourself based on correlated trades or mm-hmm. things that are somehow integrally connected as a derivative or otherwise. So, you know, as a market maker, your job is really to look at every single piece of financial information that's out there mm-hmm. to digest it in real time and have each, each piece of information affect a broad kind of matrix, think of it, of, of, of models that, that, you know, three-dimensionally or five-dimensionally moves <laughs> every other, other kind of factor and every other exposure. A lot of people are used to looking at factors of stocks, but, mm. you know, there's a, there are many, many more factors than that, right? There's the skewness of a distribution. There's the, you know, the different parts of the whole distribution, right, of each equity, of each mm-hmm. factor, right? The ETTF mm. has, speaks to that, the distribution as it relates to that factor. So, if you start collecting all this information from the market, you have a very good sense of where everything is relative to each other. Mm-hmm. And you can really in real time kind of buy high, sell low across different products, uh, different strikes, different expirations, and really you know, extract edge in real time from, mm-hmm. from the thing. But the key there is understanding the interconnection between everything and understanding the kind of the distributions of looking at it in probabilistic terms and, and understanding how things are related in that kind of construct. And, and that's yeah, your secret I mean, to jelly, yeah, or, or jam. Right, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Gotta throw one joke in there, Ali. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't imagine like all the information and the experiences that you learned from coming up in that time, which is, you know, probably some of the most volatile, amazing trading to have, you know, once you're experienced and, and learning all that. And I know that you're now, you know, pretty much the authority on all things that you speak about on Twitter. And I, and I just got to read this quote out because I love it. It's like, it's one of my favorites that I've read from you. There doesn't exist much in textbooks because it is not common knowledge. I am the authority. Everything I teach here, I taught myself and are my own theories. None of it was learned in a textbook nor taught to me. I learned all of this from 40,000 hours in the belly of the beast. And you've got to think in probabilistic terms. And I, I love that because like I started, you know, trading options when I was about 15, 16. And no, I did not have, you know, that real world experience. I was just kind of going with what I can see, right? Like I can notice certain flows moving this way, or rotations between sectors and individual names and all this. But you know, you've, you've taken it to the extreme and then some, right? So really excited to get into all these different Greeks and, and, and understanding the, the nuanced ways in which they work. Because I know a lot of people are more focused, like you're saying, on these fundamentals, thinking about where the stock will be in a year or, or you know, two years or three years. But a lot happens in the meantime that I'm sure, you know, that, that's why you're on Twitter now, I would imagine. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know that you, people love your, your information. They constantly ask you questions. And that, we're here to clear some of that up for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is I said 40,000 hours and then I, I went back and kind of did the math and it's probably closer to 50. I'm getting old. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, as we were talking about before, uh, Tony, like, you know, 40,000, 50,000 hours, it's not just the time, right? If you're looking through a keyhole for 50,000 hours, you see one thing. But if you're, right. you're in that belly of the beast, right, you're, you're kind of seeing the trades happen. You know all of the the players, they're either standing in front of you or you know them by name and, and you're experiencing that in, in a pressure cooker of oh. 2008 or, you know, 2001. And, and you, you know, those, that time is expanded at a, at a very high level. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, as I mentioned at the, you know, the top of this, you know, the, the best ideas and the best kind of understanding comes really from necessity, right? If you're mm-hmm. managing a really big book and, and you're seeing these things happening, you start looking at attribution and what's causing uh, things and you begin to tease out what's actually happening. And that's yeah. kind of how I fell into all of this. It's I just really want to ask a, a quick question there. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like in, in terms of like being in the belly of the beast, you mentioned, you know, the, these trader, you know, these, these folks by name, right. We mm-hmm. always talk about me and Tony, just like personalities of certain stocks. So I'd imagine you start to learn the personalities oh, wow. and trends of those individuals, how they're going to be trading. That's, inc- but, that's such a you know, what they had for lunch potentially could <laughs> change. You know, no, but like, yeah, I'd imagine is that does that come into play at all? A hundred percent. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. No, I mean, the S and P pit is, you know, I don't know how many it is now, but you know, at the time I was down there, probably three hundred. 350 people on the trading floor, not to mention the hundreds of, if not thousands of big players off the floor. And so, you know, and all the big guys have a propensity to do certain things. And okay. they, you know, everybody's the bigger the guys in particular, you know, I, I would count myself among those when I was down there, you know, yeah. they push the markets in certain ways on purpose to try and 
because, you know, for the benefit of all the players to get ahead of it, to push mm-hmm. things. And so there's a, you know, who's doing what, you know, why they're doing it, you know, what mm-hmm. that means, you know, when they're done and, or, or when they're at their capacity, mm-hmm. what that's going to mean. You know, part of the reason pits are still there and why they're still so valuable in, you know, in products like the S&P or, or the Euro dollars or things that are kind of institutional, big, big products is uh, you lose all of this information that we're talking about. Uh, in an electronic exchange. So you, you, you get cascades and actually worse bills. There have been studies done that, that were, were execution prices are actually significantly worse for block orders in electronic markets. When you're in a market where people know who one another are, right? Mm-hmm. They're actually more likely to say, Oh, this guy's, this guy just has this one order. He wants to get it done. And, you know, it's a match. Like we've worked together and we're going to work together again to make sure we can help each other out and get to a common price, you know, so you get to a better, place. You know, there's this, there's this old marketplace that still works quite well when you're, when you're in a otherwise illiquid kind of market without information. So in, in a way, information, more information actually creates better, you know, understanding of what's going on in the market and more stability and better execution prices. So, you know, that's the reason those pits are still there. I think they'll be around for a long time. Obviously for retail, better to, you know, electronics better, it's anonymous and, you know, but, but, but there's a, to your point, there is a ton of information that's gained uh, also to market makers benefit. You know, a phone gets picked up, you know, who the broker is who's picking up, you know, who, right. who's likely to be on the other line. You know, you know, the algos of these market makers right now, a, a certain line rings, a certain mm. broker picks it up at a certain time of the day. That's automatically a buy signal yeah, or, right. or certain algos in certain strikes in certain yeah. areas. And, you know, I know that as, also on being on both sides, you know, as a customer, you know, I, I now call down there and I have to be super cognizant of, you know, who I'm calling, when I'm calling, uh, right. wow. you know, like all these little details. And, uh, you know, you know, so it's, it's a big, uh, there's a ton of information, big game and, and, and a lot of participants. Uh, Everyone's trying to process all that info as fast as they can in as many exactly. places and as many people. I mean, yeah, yeah the, the thing about liquidity is, is so, so true, right? Like if it's, if it's just like you and me in a market, it's whatever we pay and, and I can, you know, jack the bid up and you can sell it to me higher or whatever, but then you have the liquidity, then, you know, th- there's, there's more money at play. There's more pieces to consider, right? So that's why it's so important, I guess, to include all those things. And I, this actually brings us great, greatly to our next point here about you calling that uh, move, Vanna coming back from the beach, March 31st into April 1st. I mean, that was one of the most amazing moves I've ever seen. I remember the I think it was the 3950s went from less than a buck or it was might have been five cents, I think, to 30 or so. And it was one of the most incredible end of day rips I've ever seen. Um, maybe that way you can talk about, you know, the theories, logic, the genius behind, you know, your the gamma volatility curve, Vanna Charm, Gary, dispersion, fixed strike ball, whatever you want to get into, the table's yours. Yeah. yeah. Who are these guys? We got we got to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the important parts are are vol supply, right? That it always starts with vol supply. You know, we, we call him Gary. You know, there's. <laughs> I, I I won't go into the whole story, but essentially, yeah, some yeah, mysterious. You know. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, you go you go find on dealer. Look up you know on, on Twitter. You just look up dealer. You know, a positioning of Gary, and you'll get you'll see a description. But basically, what it is is, you know, if if market makers or dealers or people warehousing risk are overwhelmingly long volatility, mm-hmm. um, it, it makes it really hard for um, the underlying market to break down because volatility is a hedge and and ultimately, the natural flow of things over time is higher because, you know, positive flows from both these, these other factors, like Vana charm, as well as just natural people make money, the economy generates earnings, and, and there's buying pressure. So you start with Gary, and you start with this understanding of, of volatility supply. And, and then you add on top of it, that understanding that if volatility is, uh, is oversupplied, and it's going to decline or at least decay on a daily basis, that means you have natural positive flows coming from things mm-hmm. like Vana mm-hmm. and charm. You know, charm particularly is, you know, per time, very predictable. As time goes forward, if the market, if volatility doesn't, you know, go, go crazy, right, because it's oversupplied, you're going to get this day, daily buying back of deltas versus a kind of short put, mm-hmm. long haul exposure. So the world is short put, long haul on the dealer side because people are hedging long put out of the money, right. short call to hedge the long exposure. If you... If you're alive, you, you know, you, you eat, sleep, breathe, you're long the market. You have a house, you have a job, you depend on other people having jobs or buying your goods or listening to you on a podcast. 
And, <laughs> and uh, you know, ultimately you're, we're all long. So the insurance premium, the risk premium for being long is ultimately downside protection is where the insurance risk premium is. And, and, and the oversupply is going to be on the, the selling calls against your position to kind of generate yield. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. in the equities, at least, uh, there's one-sided skew. It's the highest skew in the world in the S&Ps consistently because this is where people come to hedge. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, I, what, mm-hmm. and what that tells you is that the, the S&P complex is dealers are always short put long call and they'll do it in a massive way. And it's actually, they don't mind being long short put long call because it's a great trade in the long term. It's a, you have to manage the risk on it. it has a real tail as we saw in March. Right. But the reality is if you're selling the carry trade, you're selling a high ball and you're buying a really low ball and you're hedging them and you have a structured edge, but to capture that structured edge, you need to buy back the short stock or the linear hedges or whatever other hedges you have against it every day that goes by because that skew is going to decay. That skew goes to zero over time. And so if that skew decays to zero over time and there's a constant buyback of stock and Gary's there, you know, and everything's offered, you know, the market is going to to go higher as long as it doesn't break out of this this, oversupply status. And so, and you know, the the buying of charm and and again, Vana relates to this in terms of both contango right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the decay there of vol, but also in the sense that if you're sitting there over time and things are decaying, vol generally is going to continue to decline, right? right? So, so, you know, Vana comes into it that way and, and, and exacerbates those flows and makes them even greater. But these the flows are not linear, right? They don't happen equally over time. Con- they happen over, yeah. you know, expiration cycles. And, and not only over expiration cycles, like, you know, in, in general cycles, they're really exponential, right? They really mm-hmm. ramp into expiration because decay of options and skew is, is you know, exponential, right? It decays more as you approach, like significantly right. more approach expiration. Yeah. And so, you know, understanding of these expiration cycles, understanding of these Vana and charm flows and the vol supply and how they interact, like I, I'm speaking about, really informs, a, you know, a major, you know, I would say, you know, I like it's, it's about 40% attribution of my models, which is massive if you think about all the flows yeah. and, you know, and, and that's just on average. So during the really high times, it's, it's way more and during the low <laughs> times, it's less. So understanding those flows and how they're coming and, and how overwhelming they can be in the face of all these other factors. Everybody's thinking about fundamentals or risk parity flows or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, rates and how that's affecting, you right. know, kind of all targeting all these other, but the reality is this is something, a major piece that people just miss. They don't fully get or understand. Yeah. It's actually honestly something that, you know, that, that's not, like I said, it's not broadly understood because, you know, there are very few people who have experience, you know, that I and a lot of other market makers have. And right. even those that have had it have had very little experience uh, mm-hmm. translating that to, to market directionals because, because you're either a vol trader and you live in your kind of vol neutral, you know, market neutral vol world and manage the risk on those and try to digest that or you're a equity directional trader. There are very few overlaps. And, and I'm, I think right. I'm one of those that have really made that leap as you know, becoming an asset manager in the vol space. And so yeah. anyway, so those are, that's, I'm kind of yeah. a, that's the first kind of step in, into kind of that world for you guys. But, but there, so how did I call that? You know, I really deeply understanding the and measuring the positioning and how big it is relative to volume, understanding the other uh, factors. Like, again, this is, a, this is 30, 40% you know, of the factors. You also have to try to understand at least 20, 30% of the rest to, to get mm-hmm. the calls right with the accuracy that I've been able to. And I think a lot of those things, you know, I fill in with understanding those other flows I just mentioned, like risk parity, vault targeting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Understanding the timing of other calendar flows, not just seasonality and stuff, but really understanding you know, end of month, beginning of month flows, that, how big they're going to be. That 20-day cycle. But, right. And understanding then the technicals, the 20 day moving average and understanding the pips that you don't know, let's say that 20, 30, 40%, depending on the scenario that you don't know. Again, if you're looking at a puzzle and you only have certain pieces of that puzzle, you don't have the whole picture, but you have a sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You need uh, other things to give you clues on the other pieces. And that's how, really how I use technicals. Like the 20 day mm-hmm. critically important because of that monthly options expiration cycle and those calendar kind of monthly reporting of, of, of you know, asset managers and the flows that come out of those as well. And so understanding kind of strength relative to that 20 day having mm-hmm. factors helps us, gives us clues and information about what we don't know and really helps fill in that picture at a much higher level of accuracy. So for all, for all of our friends that, you know, maybe get a little lost right here, you're going to be making a children's book, right? With, with- <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was part of this whole deal. I do the exactly. podcast, you guys, and turn it into a kid. Yeah, we're, we're working on it right now. 
Uh, it's super interesting. I mean, one of the coolest things that I think out of all the cool things you just said there is that you're, you're combining the, the things that I think people choose not to a lot of the time, especially on Fintwit, right? We're getting into those valuations, the fundamentals, the thoughts of where is this company going to be in 5, 10, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it may be. And it's that, that day-to-day is a lot faster because the people who are really making moves and, and, and causing the flows and the big money has that monthly cycle to live by, right? That's that 20 day, like they are, you know, and that's why a huge part of, you know, what's going on with, with March, there was that end of quarter expiration, that OPEX that came right before all of that had to do with this. And I think, you know, those are the things that really underpin the market more than all those other things, right? Because if you, if you think about the market as like the tool, you know, how, how sharp's the tool, right? And then you can see whatever, you know, whatever trees come in, you can hedge them perfectly. But I, I, lo- I love the fact that you're, you're considering, like we always say we're trading and investors, right? So invaders, mm-hmm. and you kind of are doing that by looking at these different, you know, technical analysis factor, these different Greek flows and, and what that tells you and, and your experience. So love the combination there, because I think that's really the best way to get a handle on the market, especially in times like these. Yeah, it's a big machine is the way I look right. at it, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a ultimately a market is buyers and sellers. And you know, even over the long term it's buyers and sellers. The question is is, you know, how do fundamentals relate to the buyers? Like how does that translate to buying and selling? And that's mm-hmm. in my mind the only way that fundamentals matter, right? Is is how they affect buying and selling in the long term. And in a period of of essentially infinite liquidity, which is what we've been in now for a significant period of time. You know, those fundamentals are minuscule, Mm -hmm. uh, generate minuscule flows, ultimately. And so they're essentially irrelevant in the short term. Now, you know, there could, in theory, be infinite liquidity for ever, right? And fundamentals may never matter again, unlikely, right? My point is, Mm. fundamentals matter, (laughs) ultimately, and will ultimately matter, when liquidity dries up, you know, and, and fundamentals ultimately are, are, are cash flows that a company themselves can generate for themselves. So they're not dependent on the outside world for liquidity, you know, and so those earnings will matter when there is not enough liquidity for everybody else. And, and, you know, that's the way I look yeah. at it. And that's ultimately how, if you look over history, how things revert to fundamental valuations, you know, usually they overshoot, but it's generally in, in times of illiquidity that, that, you know, and that's what we call bubble bursting or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But it's ultimately liquidity drying up and, and forcing companies to fend for themselves and to create their own liquidity, which ultimately is earnings. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, again, I always take this, the, when I look at the machine, I'm thinking, you know, mm-hmm. what flows are this are generating? And from the top, the only major fundamentals that matters is, you know, for fundamentals is, is monetary. You know, that's why it's don't fight the Fed, right? And that's why that's been the, 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 the rally call for the last, 30 years because the Fed has been everything in terms of the funnel and, and, and the pipes for where the liquidity comes from. Right. The printer goes now, Totally. And, and why I was so able to so early to call this massive rotation that we're beginning to see between fiscal, you know, uh, value and growth, or at least ECF names ultimately, which is what I think it'll be not value in the traditional sense versus like these kind of duration kind of speculative names, you know, the way we basically we call that starting in August, well before anybody else was kind of uh, thinking about this is, you know, again, that's a flow story, right? Yeah. The, the introduction of the treasury and fiscal policy as, as the major driver, as opposed Those are major to monetary flows. <laughs> yeah, That's ultimately the one thing that's fundamental, quote unquote, that's really a flow. That's a straight flow. That goes straight into yeah, the market, just... either from, from through people's pockets and then buying right. stocks, as we've seen with the the, right. you know, it was relatively easy to also predict like kind of this, this crazy speculative fervor in stocks. People are at home, they're getting massive checks in the mail. Right. They, you know, they're not spending money, they're, their vouchers are going up. And so those flows are going to be different than, you know, high net worth people investing in passive products, right? Mm-hmm. Or co- corporations buying other companies and buy, you know. So my point is flows, 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 right, flows. Right. Right. Who's buying? Who's selling? Where's the money coming from? Yeah. And, and that's ultimately what matters. That's what makes the machine work. That's the lifeblood of the system. That's what mm-hmm. a market is, buyers and sellers. And so I think it's, it's crazy in my mind that 90% of the world talks about fundamentals and valuations when, right. when all of that is ultimately a potential driver. It's one that matters to some extent at some times, right? Mm-hmm. If the time is right. right. And so anyway, I mean, you know, a lot of people are going to 
turn the podcast off right here. Like, like, this guy, <laughs> no, I, I, he there's no way. I mean, like, you know? I'll, I'll relate it. I'll relate it right now for them. You know, the one one thing like you you were kind of you were pretty much talking about how like it, it's it's about the chapter of that stock. Like the buyers and sellers mm. in that period of time are the ones who are the, still the players and that's what matters, right? So every time I go and look at my technical analysis charts, like I'll do some anchored volume weighted average price from those events where new flows start, right? It's pretty easy to see, you know, like if you if you do stuff from a couple of days after the March bottom or right around there, you can see that a lot of things have reverted back to that volume average because that's a new set of buyers from those flows. And also, I mean, I'm sure it changes nuance every single time, you know, whether it's, you know, the Fed put more money on this month or this month, right? But it's more about those chapters of not just the market, but, you know, the individual names themselves and kind of seeing where they are in that chapter, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I always like to trim positions when they're way extended over their volume profiles or, or their volume bases and such from the beginning of that chapter. So I would imagine it's kind of like a similar thought here, right? Eventually, you know, things get overdone in one way or overdone in another, and you end up having that opportunity like we saw at the end of uh, March. And now, you know, now there's, we'll, we'll talk about that soon, what you see coming, but it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I, go sorry, go ahead, Avi. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to move to a different question, so you can answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll no, no, go for it. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is why things continue to get to always a, a crazier level or a crazier extreme than you ever, people could ever imagine. And it's ultimately, mm-hmm. things are not tethered to any type of, you know, fundamental or, or, or firm metric. Real it's value, really, yeah. yeah, it's ultimately like, are there more buyers or more sellers? <laughs> yeah. right. So sometimes it's And why are there more buyers? And, and if there are more buyers, you know, you get, how do you explain Tesla, right? How do you explain right. some of these right. things? And, and a lot of these names, the crazy thing is a lot of them, because of this liquidity, this is how it translates to, you know, monetary policy has driven free liquidity, mm-hmm. generated massive new technologies. Tesla never would have been able to, Right. You know, create yeah. a lot of the things they've created if they if they weren't provided, you know, almost a trillion dollars and, you know, or whatever, you know, the, a, a massive market cap. And and, uh, you know, same is true for Amazon. Amazon mm-hmm. probably would never have been able to take over in the way they did if they weren't allowed to not make profits for almost two decades. Right. right. And that's essentially funding of through liquidity. So yeah. we've had an industrial revolution. Right probably the biggest of all times, honestly, I think when you look back, people will, will recognize the last 30 years as a supply side driven and monetary policy driven technological boom. And, and, you know, that's, that's yeah, all. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There you go. So, but, but that said, that doesn't mean it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That liquidity right. goes away. These stocks, you know, and until they get to that scale, they disappear. And the ones that aren't, don't have enough earnings to support themselves, ultimately uh, you get creative destruction. And so anyway, it's, uh, we could go on and on about this, but yeah, uh, yeah you, get the, you get the idea here. It's, it's ultimately uh, all about liquidity. And, and there's an interesting, you know, the switch to fiscal is really gonna change that, you know, and has already started to, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I think there's some big macro effects that, that I, I see coming in the next decade as a, as a function of the problem with inequality that, that's been, you know, that's being addressed, you know, by, by through fiscal policy and mm-hmm. what that will mean for inflation and interest rates and liquidity. Ultimately. Right. And I, I was just going to say earlier, just like, you, you know, you, you talk kind of big picture about these flows and it's not just like everyone kind of gets so caught up in the details of everything, but it, you know, you simplified it, you know, in the sense using many other words previously got a little complicated, but at the end of the day, you're saying, you know, it's really about the flows. So like, Thinking about, you know, you've had some great predictions kind of in the past, I guess, but like some of these macro threats, thinking about moving forward, looking at the calendar, you know, what catalyst perhaps could be coming up for the overall market, right? For specific sectors. We've seen these, you know, I'm, I'm more of the amateur kind of retail investor here, but, you know, I, I just saw from January, we had huge growth stocks take over. Then we, you know, saw the fangs kind of make moves back here. So, you know, what, what sort of catalyst do you perhaps see coming up or trends that, you know, moving forward that, that you're taking away? Yeah, yeah I'm going to sound like I'm kind of uh, repeating myself a little bit here. But I mean, I think we've entered regime change. I called for it in August or July, August. You know, we've had a secularly, de- you know, secularly declining interest rates for, you know, 40 years. And, you know, that was, again, on the back of, you know, we had really high interest rates and high inflation and taking us off the gold standard, Nixon doing it. And then also, you know, ultimately going with monetary policy as a driving force 
to, to drive as the reserve currency, we were able to do that. And, you know, again, through supply side economics, we were essentially able to force a ton of money into the top 1%, top 0.1% in corporations over 40 years without any real growth in uh, median earnings. And so we were able to do it without generating any inflation. And that's the key. You know, the Federal Reserve is very, they, they definitely understand this. The average person doesn't. But the, when you fund money, you send money all to the capital, to capital and not to labor, that money doesn't get spent on goods. So it doesn't create inflation. And it actually does the opposite. Yep. It creates deflation because you're giving it to corporations. Corporations compete to create uh, more efficient right. technology, globalization. They send, you know, they go to, to the cheapest labor sources. You know, and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, cheap interest rates also make capital itself cheaper. So they don't, you know, so everything be, becomes actually deflationary and, and it's a cycle as well where it accelerates. So we've had this thing where interest rates can go lower and lower because it doesn't create, you know, we're creating deflation, but we can then fund this kind of revolutionary kind of boom in technology. We got to the lower bound and over 40 years, well, the, the one cost of all this and the one kind of fly in the ointment is, you know, even though everybody's kind of improving, the, the top is improving so much more right, over 40 right. years. Yeah, it's exponential. That, that people naturally are, it's not about how am I doing, it's how am I doing relative to others. And yeah. it's just the, 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 the fairness impulse, you know, in the last decade has been, you know, the people have been pounding the table about, <laughs> you know, inequality and, and the zeitgeist has changed and people have had mm -hmm. enough. And, you know, Trump came in and he took advantage of it, just like a lot of other, you know, just as, the Democrats always have, right? Like, I'm not, this is not a political thing. Right. Just, you know, just the, market. Uh, the market is ultimately saying, hey, you know, people are saying, what about me? And, and so politicians are going to, you know, are gonna, gonna take advantage of that and, and start addressing inequality, which is what people are demanding. Uh, and as they have, which is what fiscal policy is, the move from mm -hmm. fiscal and demand side economics from supply, you now enter back into the old world pre-monetary policy mm -hmm. of, you know, funding from the treasury and money going to people. And that is inflationary, not asset right. price inflationary, which is what we've had, right? But goods inflationary. Yeah, CP, and yeah, that's, the, that's the one thing that puts the Federal Reserve in a box. So to answer your question, Avi, you know, I'm mm -hmm. going about it in a roundabout way mm -hmm. is, you know, we're, this is regime change. Yeah. And the people, once they start getting the checks or once we have infrastructure spending or once we have, you know, better health care or, you know, the list go better education, all mm -hmm. these things have actually positive multipliers and actually do right. generate real growth. We have anti-globalization. So people get paid more and, the, you know, you know, all these things lead to higher rates mm -hmm. and they, they actually lead to less liquidity, equity market liquidity, right. which, right. which means companies have to generate their own earnings. And, you know, it's this whole move away from, you know, you know, growth things at all costs, give them free money, as long as it's a good idea, they're getting more eyeballs, they'll eventually grow right. into it and create a great product and it's a great investment. You know, that you can't do that anymore. And it ultimately mm -hmm. is, hey, how much dividends are you giving me or how much, you know, actual growth, you know, cash flow are you, are you going to generate? And, mm -hmm. and so my answer to you is that's the regime change. Rates right. are going higher. We've already seen the beginning of it. It's a secular trend, in my opinion, at least for the next eight to 10 years. Usually these cycles, historically, this is not the first time we've gone through this. It's mm -hmm. bigger. It's more kind of significant maybe than some past, you know, in recent history. But usually these are closer to a decade of a reset, maybe 20 years. But they, but their equity performance multiples generally are hurt quite bad on this, right? If you mm -hmm. take money from the rich Value and you give it to the, yeah, you're going to get multiple comp compressions. There's less money to go around, less flows to buy stocks. Because uh, there's more money going to buying goods. And so it, it creates multiple contraction, but earnings improvement. During the 70s, we had significant earnings growth. GDP growth was actually quite good, even relative to inflation. But markets did nothing for a decade. In real terms, they went down significantly. Right. And so, you know, that's the economy is not the market. The economy is going to do right. quite well. I say that a lot in, on Twitter. People, you know, scratch their head and don't get it. It's, it's actually oh, counter yeah. It tends to be counter-correlated. Right. Uh, the more better the economy does, the more odds there is for uh, inflation, you know, and the more odds there are for inflation or higher rates, mm -hmm. the, the, the poorer the liquidity is, the, the less, you know, the more multiple contraction you get. So that's the macro picture. Again, that's not, all, you know, that's only part of what I do. You know, most of my stuff is, is the other more detailed, you know, sure. machine, you know, inner workings of the machine flows. But I, the, 
I don't think you can do uh, all of it well unless you under have a good understanding of the the pipe the the, the big pipes flowing you know mm -hmm. from the water yeah. treatment plant to begin with. So yeah. I like that you distinguish between, you know, like where the money's flowing to. It's like, you know, it's still still out there. It's just not as much asset inflationary. It's more, you know, the actual goods that are underpinning the the economy. So we've been, you know, agreeing with you for a long time about the economy mm. uh, is going to be booming and doing very well. Like that pent up demand has been here for quite some time. I remember even uh, in last last May, I believe there was a cruise ship article that said there was a 44% net increase in bookings over from 2019 to 2021. And from that article, I was gun ho bullish. You know, I, I knew that things would broaden out and cycle together, but, and it was mm -hmm. off of one random website. And then I started looking at a couple other and, you know, it, that's like information, you know, that's, it's important stuff to know what people are wanting to do. So I think that's very cool to think. And, and this value compression thing, it's a hard initial shock. And I think that a lot of those companies who have value who are worth you know what they are now i think they'll i think mean, i think they'll do well over the long term of course and a lot of those companies who are coming through you know lmao spac or whatever it may be are going to probably have some more trouble in the future and knowing that we're going to have some of this movement and rotation over the next few years pretty interesting to know i would like to know what you think about you know predicting those spx levels what to watch for like maybe not as much I'm not sure if this person was asking more so technically or, you know, just the, the non-technical factors you've been kind of mentioning more so about, but, you know, how do you get those SPX levels that have 10 to the dot every day on Twitter? What, what are you calling Jerome and you're, you know, what's going on? <laughs> you know, there's certain things I can't tell everybody, right? Everybody wants the, the you know, the golden goose. I gotta, I, I, I gotta keep them in, in, his, in his pen. We but, had 10 people ask but, that same question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I can tell you it's, just like my other kind of predictive things, it's, it's, it's a mixture of several factors. And, and mm -hmm. one of them is, is gamma supply, right? In the, in the mm -hmm. SPX and outside, but it's also, you know, a, a understanding of, of technical levels and, you know, an understanding of, of broadly flows and where they're likely in a general area to, to give out. And, and, mm -hmm. and when they do, you know, whether on the downside or upside, where, where Gary is in control and where, where they're likely to kind of be pinned. So, you know, it's, there's a, there's this extensive process there, but it does start with understanding kind of gamma supply and understanding technicals mm -hmm. and, and important levels based on, you know, as it relates to flows. But, you know, I, I've said this before on Twitter, you know, we have a 27 factor model. I mean, there's a lot of little things in there. Some of them are very traditional, like momentum and mm -hmm. mean reversion, right? Like you got to right. start start there. And, and, you know, then there's, you know, others like put call ratios and, you know, sentiment factors. Uh, now, I was going to ask if you use the put call ratio often, but cool. Yeah, I use put call equity uh, a decent amount for very short term kind of, you know, if I'm watching something and I'm waiting for it to happen, and I know it's happening. That's, that's probably my, my shortest term kind of trigger for mm -hmm. sentiment. So when... Mm -hmm. You know, when that ticks down to a certain area, given a certain set of other things, that's an important factor that allows me to call the, the turn better mm. and to time the turn better. But yeah, again, that's one of 27. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's so you got to know of, the whole pie. You got to yeah, know all the ingredients to bake the pie. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. They, they, you know, the, the croissant recipe is, 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 but you have to have all 27 ingredients. Otherwise, uh, you know, that's amazing. <laughs> Exactly. So do you also use that, you know, the, the fear greed index that everyone on Twitter is nonstop, you know, like that, I see that all the time when things get euphoric, you see that 96 out of a hundred and things are depressing. It's like a 30, we got to turn soon. What do you think about that? How does that work? Does that get factored? Yeah, look, you at sentiment all? is important, right? right. Yeah, any trader that tells you it's not important doesn't understand. I'm a sentiment trader. I fully yeah. believe. So yeah, but, but there's different kinds of sentiment and different kinds of Sentiment work over different periods of time. They're different mm -hmm. types of traders and they, they matter more during different parts of the buying mm. process. And so understanding what sentiment applies to what flows, again, it all comes down to flows mm. and kind of relating those again. into your factor. Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> you, you know, those things ultimately inform kind of the model in that regard. But all mm. of my, you know, if I have 27 factors and I, you know, some are very, you know, there's a couple that are very long cycle, right? And they, they move very slowly and, and they matter over the course of a year. Right, right. right. And then there's some that move over the course of minutes. So, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to have these, you know, overlaid models of mm -hmm. long, like long, mid, 
you know, uh, short micro like that, that really build off one another and, and, and give you the full mm-hmm. kind of context. So I had a, uh, just to piggyback on that sentiment, right? So just recently, this Johnson & Johnson news came out that six people had unfortunately, of course, you know, passed away from the shot from the Johnson & Johnson. And you view that, you know, six people, that's alarming. It's over every single headline. And then you see how many people got it. It's like six or seven million people, right? So one, you know, on one hand, you could say, oh my God, that's, you know, the whole world, these vaccines don't work. It's, they're very, very scary. On the other hand, you can say, okay, it's six out of six million people. And if you do the data there, you know, I, so my question is, I guess, like, how do you parse through the news in terms of taking away the headlines that may scare off, you know, a lot of retail investors where in reality, you know, people aside, just looking at numbers, unfortunately, in the situation, but you know what I'm saying? Like, how, how do you yeah. start to parse through some of that and understand what's real, what's not? So, so I'm going to sound like a broken record here. And this is what yeah. I think, I think hopefully what your, your listeners most get out of this is that, you know, it's easy to get distracted by all these, all this information. And the really right. the mm-hmm. key to doing this right is, is parsing out what's important and getting rid of all the noise. And if anything, taking advantage of the noise, knowing, Hey, that's not important. Like the people right. like fade that, fade that all day long. So and you can profit from, from, yeah, the counter move on that. Exactly. So, you know, I'm going to tell like a broken record, but my question back to you is mm. how does that affect flows? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't, but that's the real question. Right. That's how I would process that. How do I process that? How does that affect flows? That's always my right. question. Okay. It's all going mm. through that lens. Yeah. <laughs> it's all going through that lens. So, you know, I'll, I'll walk you through that example. The, the way that that could potentially affect flows is Bullard has come out recently being very clear saying the Federal Reserve will not raise interest rates until we get 75 percent exactly herd mm. immunity okay so they've been very clear like you know monetary policy is dependent on us getting to to that number mm-hmm. that's how that matters to me okay outcome based yeah, right. outcome yeah based. and, and I, I, that's so interesting because I, I thought the same thing here and and so to, just to piggyback one more time off of this, because I was having this conversation literally today, like mm-hmm. about this. So knowing that the Johnson Johnson vaccine and like all these other vaccines, right? Like you need to get that 75% to herd immunity, A, factoring in all the people who don't want to get it. And I doubt it's going to get mandated. You absolutely have to get it for everyone. But regardless, like, you know, that the, at first Bullard was saying mid 2024, and now it's kind of switching a little more to this outcome-based thing, even though it has been, but they dialed back the time, right? Now they're saying, we think it's very unlikely that we raised before 2022, right? So the narrative's kind of flipping a little bit there. We had 2024, mid 2024, we were sailing, Vanna, you know, every we're partying at the beach for years. Right. And now right. it's like, okay, guys, it's just kind of coming soon. And like, we'll probably do some QE tapering before, and then we'll taper some more. And yeah, so it's, it's looking like the narrative's flipping in that way. Right. And I mean, if you ask me, you know, in June, July, August, right, I would have said, you know, we're going to be at herd immunity, you know, probably by July or August of this year. And I still think that's the case. I don't think Johnson and Johnson, at least in the US, right, like maybe not globally, but, you know, and, and so I still think that's the case. I don't think these, you know, Johnson Johnson getting paused is going to make a dramatic difference. I think mm. we have all the resources of the world. Right. Everyone. Being, everyone is being dedicated at all costs mm-hmm. to the production of this stuff. And there are going to be bumps and fears and concerns right. along the way. But the, the trajectory, we're talking a month longer, a month shorter, you know, right. something big could happen, like, uh, you know, a variant that's not going to be, you know, that's not going to be covered by, you know, fully by the vaccine. But again, I've done my research on that. I understand what the odds of that are. It's very low. You know, my wife's Numbers a pulmonary critical yeah. care physician. Like, I, I, grilled her, I grilled her from the very beginning. I've done my research. Like, I know the probabilities are incredibly low, even if mm. it's not as efficacy. You know, you have to understand that the flu vaccine is, is, is less than yeah. 50%. 30, yeah. 37, right? exactly. 37. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, vaccines that are broadly available that are 95 plus percent, mm-hmm. you know, even if against these other strains, if it's 50%, you're still fine. Like the, right. you're not in a situation where, where, the, you know, where you were, you were right. Like you, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're just, you're having to, to deal with, with small fires here and there, but we're going to get, going to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the important part. And so, you know, I, 
don't get distracted by the, you know, the shiny objects, right? Understand yeah. that like, if, it's a, if it's something that really can alter in a significant way the trajectory of where we're going. And otherwise, mm-hmm. stick to the plan, stick to the understanding of the flows, understand how, you know, is that changing things, you know, would be my answer. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Amazing. Cool. Yes, I'm. I, I, sorry, three, two, one. <laughs> I, I did it again. I'm like, I'm like reading like his name. So, yeah. Three, two, one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, I was just gonna ask if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about before we like wrap up here, because we we went through a good amount of questions. Are we I feel pause like. right now or no? Uh, okay. No, we're not. But it's, oh, okay. It's okay. Here, let, we can pause yeah. for two seconds. I, I just want to know if there's anything else you wanted to like. Two, one. So piggybacking off of that, just kind of going back to your, what you were previously saying, you know, we're you you're thinking June, July timeframe roughly is when we should hit that capacity, that the herd immunity, right? So would it be fair to say then, you know, you think that for the next couple of months we're going to continue to to do well from the stock market perspective as a whole, and then when the economy, you know, it starts to pick up again and, and things start to look better, you know, if in most people's mind from a Corona perspective, that's when you think that, that things will start to shift a little bit back. Yeah. I mean, I, I think here, and I've, I've kind of said this publicly on Twitter, you know, I think in the short term, and, and I've called for this again, since, since August of last year, you know, the spring is important, you know, getting through, you know, there's, there's a reason all these seasonality factors exist. You know, we, especially this year coming out of, you know, a really tough COVID winter, Right. It made sense for, and, and the fiscal response that would be paired with that, that I, you know, saw coming, you know, it made sense to get this push, especially in the spring. Now the housing market's hot. Again, not a surprise, you know, and there's a ton of positive flows. People are buying goods. People have more money in their pockets. They haven't been spending. They're going out and they're getting spent. So, and, and there's more money flowing in. That said, it's like this is pushing rates higher. We've been seeing rates climbing for a while now. I mean, there's been a little bit of a short term this week kind of stabilization, mm-hmm. but yeah, finally, right? After like eight, eight, nine consistent weeks in a row of increases and, and yields. So I, I, think, I think that continues. This is a brief kind of digestion period for rates, but you know, we're getting earnings now. They're, they're gonna come out stellar. We're already starting to see that. You're, you're, getting, you're likely to get an infrastructure spending plan sometime soon, or at least the, the insight that it's coming right? Mm. That people buy in fully that it's, it's here. And, and then, you know, next month, you know, you got taxes due. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember everybody at retail mom and pop bought stocks in March, everybody, they were yeah. given a bunch of money on the bottom market was down 35%. People were underinvested. People bought, mm-hmm. people made a lot of money. They're going to have to pay taxes on that, right. you know, and, and people, you know, haven't been making estimated payments. Trust me, you know, there, there, are, there is some selling that's going to happen based on that. There's also this window where year passed when people bought. So it's going from short-term capital gains. Nobody wants to realize those short-term capital gains. But, you know, once it becomes yeah. long-term anyway, like, okay, you know, I got to take some profits. I got to sell, you know. Right. So there's a natural the kind of pressure coming here in the next month. And that's part of what's allowed me to say, okay, we're probably going to top out short-term mm-hmm. in this 4140 area, like predicting the dates and the cycles. But this is a reason why. I had some like, you know, short-term confidence that, you know, again, we can go a little higher than this. I, I right. wouldn't shock me, but, but in the short term, at least the next two weeks, I, you know, it's a risky period because all these factors are sitting out there um, mm-hmm. on the other side of this. If we stabilize the next two weeks, I, you know, I, I could see us kind of grinding higher for another month or two, but I would be very, very cautious, you know, in the, in the months to come. I think, I think we, most of the, the, the story has played out rates earnings are, are likely to pick up and again that response to earnings is ultimately more inflation uh, i think the spending response is just starting i think mm-hmm. we're going to have an uh, if infrastructure passes we're going to have an avalanche of you know of, of of different you know spending and and earnings growth and you know i'm seeing it here in chicago which we haven't seen a hot real estate market you know <laughs> throughout 2007 2008 you know even before you know since 2007 2008 we haven't had uh, you know, any real real estate appreciation here. And in the last year, you know, we've seen about 20, 25% uh, just in the last year. And that's not just supply, lack of supply. That's a big part of it. But the demand of, you know, right. uh, individuals buying their first single family home, I mean, there's massive under ownership because the millennial, like millennial generation had two financial crises, growing, you know, debt from education and all kinds of other other things. And, and you know, that's being solved by, ironically, by this fiscal, you know, stimulus. Mm. And so, you know, housing is a huge driver. 
A lot of other, you know, earnings consumption growth is huge. And so ultimately we're going to, we're going to, again, watch those rates. And then if we start seeing Gary get unpinned, that's good. You know, we can move back into kind of the Greeks here. Yeah. Is, you know, you know, as we rally, you know, fixed right vol, which is basically, you know, if you look at an option smile, you know, there you have skews. So downside vol is priced at higher than upside. And, and so we naturally slide to lower balls. If we continue to rally here, we're going to continue to slide, you know, and, and you know, balls continue to come down. On top of that, we're going to slide to a, a, a floor and we're already getting there. We're already very close in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what that will do is create more and more buyers of vol protection as we rally to new highs. And that should over time here in the next month or two, in my opinion, especially once Vana is pulled out, you know, she's, she's on vacation, Charm goes on vacation. The, the, you know, there, it's likely to remove some of the oversupply of vol with the expiration of April monthly here. And I, my, my view is that as Vol goes, you know, Gary becomes uh, hungrier, hungrier. There's less, you know, of all their rates go higher, which also removes liquidity, which also mm-hmm. uh, yep. feeds gamma less. You know, you, you're likely to get not only multiple contraction, but you have this potential energy for a real expansion in Vol, which we haven't seen in a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's every reason to believe that, you know, Gary, which has been kind of the linchpin for holding this whole thing together, you know, this over gamma supply is into a rally is going to remove, you know, all the excess kind of gamma and, and protection that's been holding things together, and which, you know, will we'll shake things out a bit. So I, again, is it the end? Is it the end of the rally? Are we going to collapse? No, this thing happens over time. But I do I expect some type of correction, which we haven't seen in a while, or you know, maybe more, maybe even 20%, something real, you know, at least a big warning shot, I would call it. Yes, I do. And, and ultimately, this thing will probably go even higher and we'll see that an even greater, you know, yep. result. But I think the trend is again, towards fiscal, towards higher rates. And that will ultimately sometime, maybe it's September this year, mm-hmm. maybe it's uh, a little bit later, maybe it's March in the spring of next year, when it can really get to the point where rates are no longer, you know, in this, this, you know, you, know, you can no longer get a mortgage for two and eight. No, yeah, it's right. Uh, at three eight, you know, or four, you know, oh, yeah. plus, <laughs> you know, this this economy has big problems, and and you know, not just the economy, the economy actually will be fine, but the, you know, the the this market has what know, we're doing, the, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, the liquidity, the liquidity will be a, a major, uh, begin to become a real concern, and, and and the Federal Reserve, you know, the Fed, the Fed can't keep, you know, people are like, well, the Fed will just, you know, when yeah, we decline, really. when we decline, the Fed will just do yield curve control, they'll keep the longer end down. And, and the argument against that is ultimately, if you have real inflation, you know, if you have three and a half percent inflation, you start getting something real and you try and keep the long end of the curve at, you know, at two and a half percent, you know, in real, real terms, you're just going to stoke inflation. You're basically, you know, people will leverage two and a half all day long to buy things yielding 4%. Yeah, and, they're just arbitraging and, at that point. Yeah, and, and that'll just drive inflation even higher. And, and that long end of the curve, like the Fed will lose complete control of it. So so they can, you know, they ultimately can. And, and that's going to create a rising rate, not just in terms of inflation, but in terms of the Federal Reserve liquidity. So... Yeah, very, I mean, very interesting. And like, since the beginning of the podcast, we've been saying, you know, everything's good until it's not right. Like, as soon as the taper tantrum comes in any form, right? It's, it's a lot of, and and this is, I guess, going back to sentiment a little bit. It's, we knew that it was all our foots all the way down the pedal for the last while. Now, you know, things have been changing over the last month, last two months now. And it's very important to know and, and be cognizant of these things. So going back into some of those, you know, those Greeks that you're so dearly in like, love with, and you always post these great photos on Twitter, the, the GIFs that go with them, the little emojis, which one would you say is like the most important one you want to tell the people about? Or if you want to maybe describe Vanna a little bit more, maybe Charm, whatever you can say. I know that you're pretty much like in the CIA. We can only ask you, <laughs> you know, half a question. But... You got to ask for Chris Forsyth. I'll do a little promotion here. I, I'm going to be writing, a, I'm in the process of writing a white paper about Charm and Vana and how they all kind of interact and how, and how they're important to broad market structure, right? There's nothing Amazing. really out there that discusses it. And we're obviously the authority on that. So really want to put that out there to educate the world in a more kind of clear and concise way. I will give you kind of a teaser on that. And ultimately, I think we talked about this a little bit offline, but, you know, Charm and Vana, they're very important in how they interact for market structure. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, Charm is, is the one thing that's predictable, right? You know that time is going to pass. This may not be linear, uh, right? Like, uh, you know, certain events may mm-hmm. occupy more time in terms of, of the decay of all. 
but but ultimately, you know, time does progress, and 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 as time progresses, you know, this skew carry trade, risk premium trade, which again, it's not just the options; it's everything that feeds into the option market right. as well. You know, it does decay, and and so you start with charm, but the second you think about charm, you know, the term structure structures broadly in contango, right? So over time, options also slide down, you know, the term structure. So that's VADA, right? Right? Like the vols are declining as charm is passing. So that's first level of VADA. But there's there's two actually other levels of VADA, which are very important, which feedback. The more you sit because Gary is oversupplied and, and the more, you know, buying pressure there is from charm and this contango VADA, the more support there is, the more likely this market is, to, less likely it is to decline, which means the whole curve tends to, during these periods, also decline right. altogether. Um, that's another level of VANA. So it's a kind of a, you have not only these charm flows, you have these contango VANA flows, and then you got broad VANA flows on top of that because the whole curve tends to decline during these periods. And then you have this last VANA, which is, which is really as you, you know, as you sit there and this thing decays and things come down, structurally that, that creates more and more vol selling mm-hmm. because people are getting oversupplied more and more. Gary's getting more and more fed because Vana and Charm are supporting the market. There's more and more Vana, and it's a circular thing where right. the whole curve doesn't just decline because of, because of realized volatility declining. Uh, supply and demand basis, ball just gets massively oversupplied and just compresses. So it's such a circular, and they're mm-hmm. all interrelated to one another. It, it declines and declines and declines until it's the bottom, and then it all unwinds the opposite right. way. It's and so, sneaky. yeah, so you know, the key is understanding that in 95% of scenarios, there's a natural uh, propensity for the market to grind higher because of these flows. And there's a natural propensity, regardless of what's actually happening in the world, for ball to compress and compress and compress and compress and compress and compress compress from a higher level. It just happens naturally because of these supporting flows. These flows flows are, 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 are so supportive. They're structurally supportive. They support the whole market. And and they lead to, you know, overextended market moves. They lead to overselling the vol and cycles of massive compression of vol. And then they ultimately get to a point where, you know, it gets so oversupplied. And there are external factors that are important, like I talked about, like rates is the biggest one, right? Mm-hmm. Liquidity factors that ultimately can, can, can pry this loose. And when you hit a point like that, or it's gone to such an extreme and it gets pried loose, Right. That's when things kind of unwind the other way, and that's what we see in March and during liquidity crises, et cetera. Right. But you know, this is how markets work. This is the machine. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the important thing is, so many people talk about gamma, and you know, there's just been this kind of people become enamored with this idea of gamma. It's, it's the you know, whether it's whether it's, idea box, they whether it's yeah. yeah, and there are all these services that have been about gex, right? About like. You know, spot, you know, and, and it's valuable. I'm not mm. calling anybody out or saying, you know, you're doing it wrong. But, you know, gamma has been what everybody talks about. It's because, you know, they think about kind of the, the, the explosive force of, of something big happening, right? And it's it, 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 it sexy right? and it's exciting. Gamma, right? That would be indicator. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but, but the reality is, and the, the part that I've really tried to kind of bring to, Fintwit and broadly, you know, the, the financial world here that nobody understands or talks about is how that's actually only important, you know, for the broad market, you know, single stocks, like other story, but for the broad market, it's only important in 5%, one or 2%, you know, sub 5% right. of, of situations. And 95% of the time, it's the structural flows of, of the decay of the carry trade and, and, you know, what that means for mar- broad market structure that matters. And there's so much more money to be made on that. So many more right, important yeah. lessons, the understanding <laughs> of prediction and what's going to happen that come from that. You need to be able, gamma is important in terms of broad market, in terms of risk management, right? It's the tail. But the tail is like, it's a, and it may, it's a fat tail and there's, you need to be worried about it, but it's still the tail. The majority of the distribution and the factors that the options and how they affect that distribution are are the Avana and Charm and these factors that I'm talking about. So and it's amazing to me that, you know, obviously I, I didn't know it. I didn't teach myself, but it is amazing to me how important it is when you begin to look. It's like you're looking at the matrix. You understand how everything yeah. works all of a sudden. The more, you know, the more you start to understand it. And, and I've really, you know, been preaching about that. But I think it's important to know that, 
you know, this isn't something that's in the textbook. It's not something that's been written about. And that's part of why we're going to put this white paper together. But it is something that should be in the, you know, universally in, in the public sphere and, and well known and, and documented and, and researched. And, yeah. and I think we're on the front end of, you know. Teaching. By no one else, no one other than the authority, of course. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. When, when can we expect this white paper not to put you yeah. on the spot? Yeah, I, uh, I really want to read it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what, this is an important topic. We don't want to put it out there before. But that said, we're working on it. And I would say within within three months. But I, you know, I, I'm going to under, you know, under promise and over deliver, hopefully. But yeah, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully a lot sooner than that. Hey, listen, our fans are, are used to us promising something and then waiting a few more weeks. Uh, no worries there. And, and a few months. Yeah, you got you like know. a year. You're good. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I hope, uh, you know, hopefully things start to continue to go well and, and appreciate you having, you know, you on the show in a couple of weeks, you know, a couple, let me start that again. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm distracted because my wife keeps moving around in the background. Uh, all right, cool. So let me start this again. Three, two, one. So thanks so much, Jen, for coming on. Uh, you know, hopefully in a few months, you know, when things start to straighten out, hopefully with Corona, maybe we'll come to Chicago, have a beer with Vanna, you know, Charm, everyone. <laughs> so thanks. We'd, lo- we'd, lo- we'd love to have you out. We'd, you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime, you know, on the other end of kind of this this interest rate rise uh, and we can talk about that. Oh yeah, it'd be interesting to go to the before and after. It'd be fantastic to talk about. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, I like love learning anything about options and the structure of the markets. Like I, I always love to think that there's so much more going on than just the stuff that we float through on Twitter. And and it's the truth. And we, we heard it from the, from you yourself. So thanks so much for coming on this week. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Nah, yeah. Thanks. All right.